Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to speak with A.R. Moxon about Dilbert creator Scott Adams facing some consequences at long last for his uh, really overt racism. And of course, crying about how unfair it all is, that he is judged by the things he says. How dare us judge him by the things he says. By the way, he's um, one about losing his income. I read somewhere that his uh, net worth is 75 million bucks. So and the dude can't even draw hands. So I don't know. Um, then we're going to talk to Parker Malloy about how the mainstream press um, is not liberal and is not your friend if you value American democracy. And it's a it's a challenging thing for us to argue because it's so uniformly embraced that the um, that the institutions, these institutions, these big media institutions, skew at least center left. And you know. Whatever is in people's hearts, the product is what matters, and the product often skews right. Um, we have a lot to cover today. I'm going to keep the introduction short. I just want to mention a new study that came out, or did it come out this week? I saw it this week. It's a new study, um, and it found that we are really exceptional. American exceptionalism is real when it comes to gun violence. Um, it's hard to overstate. Um so this is a study of gun violence in developed countries. The NIH study using World Health Organization data, World Health Organization data found, and I quote, the homicide rate in the U.S. was 7.5 times higher than the homicide rate in other high-income countries combined, which was largely attributable to a firearm homicide rate that was 25 times higher. So you have this massively higher homicide rate and the disparity between our homicide rate and other high income countries, homicide rates is nothing compared to the disparity in, in terms of the firearm homicide rate. This is the Republican crime spree, right? I mean, they're, they, they say they're anti-crime, but Jesus Christ, we are just, being eaten alive with gun crime. And they are, you know, at some point, if you oppose every effort to reduce gun violence, we have to think maybe you're for gun violence. The overall firearm death rate was 11 times higher in the U.S. than in other high-income countries. So that includes accidental deaths and suicides as well. So just, again, homicide rate in the U.S. compared to other high-income countries seven and a half times higher uh, gun homicide rate, 25 times higher overall gun death rate, 11 times higher. Let me quote here again. Um, I'm going to round the numbers off because this is, it's stunning to me. So in this data set of highly industrialized, you know, high development countries quote, 84% of all firearm deaths, 92% of women killed by guns and 97% of all children aged zero to four years killed by guns were from the U S we dominate in terms of gun deaths. It's these, these numbers are, it's hard to wrap your head around them. And although you know, conservatives always like to be like, look at Chicago. There's lots of people getting shot by guns. Well, those guns, they come from not necessarily Chicago, right? We have poor states. But even though, you know, gun laws in one state are often thwarted by liberal, more liberal gun laws in another state, or I should say more conservative, less onerous gun laws in another state, there is consistent, there is significant um, differences between states. They found the study found that firearm homicide rates were 36 times higher in high gun U.S. states and 13.5 times higher in low gun U.S. states than the firearm homicide rate in other high income countries combined. Uh, it's an absolutely insane country we're living in. And I just want to stress that nobody even thought Nobody, it didn't occur to anyone that the Constitution conferred an individual right to own guns until the 1960s, 
when a law student first proposed it, right? It was always like the people, plural, have a right to bear arms. Not you, that unhinged guy who has a protective order against him. Uh, and the so-called originalists on the Supreme Court ignored all of that history uh, and they legislated an individual right to bear arms from the bench. They have an enormous amount of blood on their hands and the founders would have thought we were crazy because we are. It's absolutely bonkers. Uh, so we're going to move on with the show. Stay tuned. Try not to get shot or shoot someone else during this quick break and we'll be right back with AR Moxon. There's no civilization in sight And I'm losing the light of day Even in the darkest night I'm gonna find my way Said I'm gonna find my way Another broken neon sign Circling of the birds of prey. The Lord's gonna take some time. But I'm gonna find my way. Say, I'm gonna find my way. Find my way. Change forever. Find my way. Welcome back. I always keep in mind that there are a lot of people who aren't very online and don't pay a lot of attention to the news or they just watch the evening news on their local stations, whatever. Millions of Americans don't trouble them, themselves with the kind of um, bullshit that we have to wade through every week. And I think it's a problem in the sense that democracy rests on a well-informed electorate, but I also envy them in a sense because uh, they can avoid just a lot of a lot of brain space for nonsense. Anyway, if you're listening to this show, the chances are very good that you know that Dilbert creator Scott Adams has increasingly gone off the rails in recent years. Uh, you probably know that he went off on a racist tirade, and I believe every newspaper that carried his comic decided to drop it, uh, as did his distributor and, according to Adams, his book agent, and now he is whining about being canceled. This is all following a very familiar script. Um, my next guest wrote an excellent essay on this and related stories. It's the, the, the dynamic at play here, not just uh, uh, a Scott Adams story. It's a bit of a rant, but a good one. He joins me now to discuss it. A.R. Moxon writes a Substack newsletter called The Reframe, which you can check out at armoxon.substack.com or just Google it. A.R., welcome to We've Got Issues. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for taking that time. And um, by the way, his piece is titled The Case for Shunning. Uh, AR also runs the popular Twitter handle Julius Goat, which you should not follow because you should have some self-respect and not be on Twitter, but you should follow him on Mastodon at Julius Goat. Anyway, um, you write that Scott Adams seems to have been caught by surprise to face consequences for his rather blatantly racist jag, uh, on which he called black people a hate group and urged that white people, quote, get the hell away from them. He also promised to stop helping black people, which is so crazy. It's kind of funny. You were also surprised that he was held accountable so swiftly by so many publishers. Um, why was that? Yeah, that's true. I, well, uh, I, I was surprised, I think, because, you know, Scott Adams saying uh, things that are, are, you know, crazy or racist or otherwise bigoted or sometimes just off is not something that's new. Right. And, and I think that we all know that it's, it, it, if we are one of those regrettable people that you were talking about at the beginning of, <laughs> uh, of this, uh, who, who are online a bit too much, uh, Scott Adams is a bit too much online. Um, I share that with him. And so any of us who are in that boat know that, that Adams is somebody who has, uh, has a lot of thoughts and most of those thoughts are the sort of thing that you'd think would make 
you know, newspaper uh, editors who are in charge of who is on the funny pages and who isn't, maybe think twice. So after, you know, over a decade on Twitter, making really a, a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of moments where he's sort of the main character of Twitter. Yeah, um, I think I think that it would be reasonable for uh, Scott Adams, creator of Dilbert, to think that he had uh, sort of a qualified immunity that was uh, indestructible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I was I, I kind of thought that I didn't think that I didn't think that something like this was going to happen to him. Um, there's a lot of talk about cancel culture in our society but the truth is that um it it's pretty rare especially for somebody who has already achieved some level of prominence and and success and especially if it's a white dude who has a a a lot of things to say and a lot of opinions so yeah yeah yeah. and uh, just so listeners know like adams has been and and AR lays this out very well in this piece. He's a pretty typical right-wing crackpot. He's a big Trump supporter. He denies that like anti-black racism is real. He believes anti-white racism is a huge problem. He downplayed COVID. He's uh, at least anti-vax curious. I, I don't know if he's a full-on anti-vaxxer, but he toys with it. And he's said uh, a lot of offensive things over the years. And it's it's not 100% clear why this was the straw that broke the camel's back. But I think... It was a, a rather explicit call for segregation, and, and maybe that's a, maybe that's a red line. I, I don't know. Um, I want to quote a little bit from your piece. You wrote, and I quote, what Scott Adams objects to is what all supremacists object to, which is the existence of other people and their ability to form conclusions apart from his own will based on readily available evidence. His complaint is that he's not being heard, but we know he is being heard because we heard him. His real objection is something he can't say without giving away the game. His real objection is that he's being understood. Uh, AR, good writing. Can you unpack Thank that you. for us? Uh, yeah, so I, I think maybe to start, um, it's it it's best to go to uh, a rather charged word that I used, which is supremacists. Um, I think the idea of uh, that I'm trying to get at with that is... Um, a lot of times when, when people talk about supremacists or supremacy, um, they think that it's something that's, that's not really possible unless you're wearing a white hood and you're burning a cross. But as I see it, you know, as you mentioned, I, I'm trying to get not so much at Scott Adams as the dynamic that's happening here. Yeah. And I think that what's going on a lot of the time is at a fundamental level, there is a a belief um, is sort of embedded in the the national atmosphere, national spirit, or whatever you would want to call it, that that foundationally believes that there are some people that matter and there are other people who don't matter. And if if someone is a supremacist, they tend to believe that they are in the group that matters, and that can fall along any number of um, of of intersections and axes. Um, it could be wealth supremacy. It could be uh, it could be male supremacy. It could be uh, something to do with uh, sexual orientation or gender, and it almost always aligns with power. And it, when it aligns with power, it becomes oppressive. I think that what Scott Adams has been doing all along is trying to, uh, and and this is sort of what I was getting at with with the piece that you quoted. Um, is is trying to enforce his reality on other people in a way that is sort of subtle, uh, uh, or if not subtle, it's it it becomes subtle in our society because there's a lot of um, accommodation to it. He's he's trying to mediate reality and our ability to perceive reality through his. Uh, uh, his permission structure. He, he needs to be convinced that a thing is true in order for it to be true. And in, until he is convinced, then it doesn't matter really how many uh, experts there are, what evidence is available. And this goes all the way down to his, his recent tirade that got him into all of this trouble. 
I believe that what he's doing now is explaining that he didn't really mean what he said. And that's usually the case uh, with somebody who needs to mediate reality through their ability to be convinced by it. Right. Yeah. So, so the, the issue at hand here is that we are, we are meant to go on forever not realizing that Scott Adams is the sort of person who says the sort of things that Scott Adams says. And there are a lot of people like Scott Adams out there who object very much when you understand the meaning of what they said. Yeah. The thing, this, this goes all the way back to the thing that really set him off, which was a Rasmussen poll. Rasmussen polled a lot of people about uh, this phrase, what do you think of the phrase, it's okay to be white? Well, anybody who's paying much attention knows that it's okay to be white is a white nationalist slogan. Um, and Scott Adams would like us to not know that. And he'd like to pretend that he doesn't know that. And it seems that Rasmussen would also like us to pretend that we don't know that. And to think that everybody is answering that question on face value. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really so, important. It's been, yes. missing, it's been missing from a lot of the reporting about this, which has troubled me. So you have this thing, it's okay to be white. It's a white supremacist slogan that was popularized on 4chan. And if you're, if you are, as we've said, very online, you know this, you know this. So like, obviously it's okay to be white. And if I was asked this question, I would say no, because I know what it means to people like Scott Adams. And, um, you know, let's keep in mind that Rasmussen is not a polling firm. It's part of the kind of sprawling conservative propaganda apparatus. I mean, they blocked me on Twitter a few years ago for calling out some questionable issues in their crosstabs. I mean, that's not a polling firm. And um, again, you know, Rasmussen, uh, Rasmussen uh, insists and is accommodated in being seen as a legitimate polling operation, like even that. though we can all see that they aren't. Right. And and so the the idea that seems to be operative um, in uh, among power structures and just in general uh, in general discourse is that you cannot perceive things as they are, because to do that is to be intolerant or to. Uh, it, to be closed-minded, right? So, so what you just said about Rasmussen is true, and they pulled on a question that is a white supremacist. I mean, they may as well have pulled on what is it, the fourteen words or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. You know, th what do you think of the 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 year fourteen eighty eight, which is another neo-Nazi, you know, catchphrase. Uh, these these are things where where seeing things as they are is seen as as intolerably biased, and I th I think that that is really what's at play. Let me dig into this a little bit more. Do you have any thoughts about it, what it says about the media environment in which these actors operate? In that this well known troll by white, by white supremacists was missing from so many reports about this. And and I, I'll credit, like, Huffington Post mentioned it. <clears throat> I think the Daily Beast story did as well. But if you look in, uh, I think it was the New York Times, Washington Post, a lot of mainstream outlets, either they were unaware of this, which is a different problem, or they felt that that context was something that didn't need to be included. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I do. I, I, I think this is what I meant earlier when I said that this can get subtle because it's made to be subtle. It's, it's, it's impossible to say that any uh, media outlet or any writer who was reporting on this or any editor who, who was, you know, deciding which paragraphs went in and which got taken out um, chose not to include that detail. But the fact is that it wasn't very present. And um, I, I think that that goes to the accommodation of this demand to be able to say whatever you want and to be able to do whatever you want and to never be perceived for what you are or understood for what you are. Because when that happens, then it is treated as bias. 
So, uh, you know, I, I think, I think that a lot of times maybe newspapers don't want to be perceived as biased. The, you know, gaming, uh, the referees has worked to a degree. I think that the urge to accommodate this and to accommodate the, the, uh, this, this sort of supremacist worldview where there are people who matter and there are people who aren't really the more you start to consider that as a a governing uh, uh, philosophy, the more that you can really see it at play. And I just think that it permeates to a degree that it becomes almost invisible um, in the way that it is deployed. And, and, and so in that way, a lot of times our media... Um, uh, structures can function as a, you know, uh, a, a sort of reputational laundry for, yeah. for these bad actors. They you know, whitewash it, a lot of extremism because they believe that to some degree, and maybe it's internalized, I think it's largely internalized, that being pro-democracy has become a partisan issue. And if you call out... Um, you know, a rejection of pluralism, which is really what we're talking about here. Um, that is a that is an act of partisanship or an act of bias. I, yeah. I decided not to play a clip of the of Adam's rant. <clears throat> Listeners can find it easily enough. I referred to his to it as a rant, as many outlets did, but that kind of implies a level of like high dudgeon that uh, that he was in a lather you know but he delivered this rant very calmly if you if you listen to it he's actually pretty cool when he says it and um i don't know what his state of mind is and let's expand out from adams for this because we can't know what was in his mind but we have seen a cycle very frequently with a conservative pundit or twitter personality politician whatever and maybe they aren't getting a ton of attention. And so they up the ante, right? They up the level of trolling. They say something outrageous. And then they face some consequences and they embrace their martyrdom. And being canceled is a very good career move in the conservative movement. Uh, just because their like, uh, bizarro persecution complex is so deeply entrenched. The most obvious case would probably be that of like... Uh, Barry Weiss, who was never fired from the New York Times. She resigned after her colleagues called her out for being dishonest about internal discussions. And she went ahead and claimed that she'd been canceled anyway and leveraged that into a, a lucrative new gig. So he wrote a defense of shunning. And um, we're going to get into that in a second. But is there a way of not playing into their hands? It seems like they have figured out a really effective routine. Either they get away with being blatantly bigoted or they face some social consequences, which work out great for them in the end. Yeah, I. That's more than I can worry about, honestly. Because I, what what becomes of the you know quote unquote canceled um, conservative reactionary is pretty well known, and it's true that frequently they will profit from it. At the end of the day, we have to be able to see things as they are and to understand that when people say something, they are the kind of person who says that sort of thing. Right. When somebody does something or supports something, it means that they are the kind of person who believes and supports that kind of thing and that some things are unacceptable and the way that the only way that you can show that something is unacceptable is to not accept it. And I use shunning as a word um, and, and it, it's, it's meant to get attention and it does. And I, I do mean shunning. I think that shunning can be appropriate. I don't mean that every single time is the way that it was taken uh, by, by some, but I don't mean that every single time somebody says something that's a little bit off base, you shun them, but it does mean that there are there do need to be consequences, and I I actually think that even those who manage to go on and and you know they they find themselves in whatever you know quote unquote canceled circuit where which is very profitable 
and so on. I think that the loss of um, the loss of reputation still matters, and I think it matters to them, and I think that they know it, and I think that that's why there's so much resentment around it. But unless you build up that intolerance for the intolerable, unless we are willing to say, this is actually unacceptable to me, and as a result, it has changed the way I feel about you or about this or about this group or about this institution or whatever it is, and as a result of my feeling differently now, I no longer want to associate with this, or I no longer, I probably don't want to spend as much time with you. I might not be as interested in having this conversation with you anymore. And if we're going to have this conversation, it's going to need to follow different lines than it has, because this is no longer fruitful. I think that actually changes the atmosphere to do that. And it may be the only way. I don't believe that when we went from a time in the 60s where you had Jim Crow laws and you had a very normalized system of belief where people could express that they thought white people were superior without paying any social cost. I don't think that license was revoked because people sat down and had debates one-on-one -on -one with every single entrenched racist and convinced them. Right. through moderated debate and the entrenched racists said, oh my goodness, you've presented so, wrong. so much evidence. I was wrong. I, no, the license to do that socially got revoked and it got revoked. This is simplifying it a lot, but it got revoked because over time, what was acceptable to do and say changed in a lot of different ways. And I think that that is necessary, especially in a time like this, when we know that we see rising fascism and we know that the that political violence on the right has become normalized and even celebrated. And we know that all, you know, all of these very bright red warrant flashing warning signs are happening. The fact that some people are deciding that the real chilling effect in a time when whole areas of study are being criminalized in Florida and books are being subjected to state approval before they can be shelved, that the real issue is that Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, is being pulled off of the newspaper pages because he said that white people should stay the hell away from black people is telling. Yeah, that is it's not, you know, it's not the problem. And so to me, I, I just feel very strongly that the right to free speech includes the right to believe that some things are unacceptable and objectionable. Um, and that's, that's where I stand with it. I mean, I think cancel culture, what is derided as cancel culture is simply norms changing and uh and a lot and a lot of people being unhappy with that and then creating this narrative with the help of fox news and all of these right-wing publications that spring up and all, also radical centrists you know um making a narrative out of that and i, I want listeners to go read ar's um essay it's really good i think the most important point he makes that the right has totally corrupted the meaning of free speech. And in a country that does value free speech and free expression, it's important that we maintain our freedom to speak out and express our uh, outrage over this stuff. And, um, and, and that is, it's inherent in free speech as well. A.R. Mox, and I believe we're about out of time. I really want to thank you for sharing your insights with us. Well, thank you for having me. Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then come right back with Parker Malloy to talk about what the fuck is wrong with the New York Times. It's kind of related. I got to say it's kind of related. Stay tuned.
Welcome back. This is one of those weeks, and we do this kind of often, where we have a certain degree of continuity between our segments. Uh, actually, it'll spill over into next week as well when we're going to take a good look at what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida as the so-called liberal media assures us that he is not a fascist, and you're crazy for thinking that he is. Um, the week before last, we talked with Dan Frumkin about the latest controversy at the New York Times on a group of Times contributors, including my next guest, who has written for the Times, called out the paper's relentlessly skewed coverage of transgender people in America, coverage that is very much informed by the right's moral panic. Uh, we briefly discussed the Times editors and some reporters push back against that criticism, um, including, I should say, a number of Times employees reportedly facing internal investigations and potentially uh, disciplinary actions for their criticism, right? First Amendment for thee, uh, for me, not for thee. And I wanted to expand on that conversation this week because the problem at the Times and at a lot of, at a lot of legacy media outlets um, that frequently face accusations of having a liberal bias really goes way beyond their trans coverage. This is just a, just one aspect of the problematic media environment that we're working in. So I'm joined now by one of our favorite semi-regular guests, Parker Malloy. Parker writes the Present Age newsletter, which you can find easily enough via a search, or you can go check it out at readtpa.com. Um, she also has a relevant piece at Dame Magazine titled Legacy Media Tilts Two Ways, Center Right and Far Right. Parker, welcome back to the show. Hey, it is uh, it is as good to be here as good can possibly be. Let's go with that. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's so unusual. Most people hate doing this. Relative show. goodness. <laughs> so, um, I feel like a big problem with this topic is that the the legacy media have multiple cross cutting biases. Everybody has biases. Every living person has biases. Um, a lot of them are not liberal per se, but in some cases look liberal. And uh, just to, to name a couple of obvious examples, even reporters from rural areas live in big cities, right? So there's this kind of like urban bias that makes their coverage of rural America, of rural issues, look like anthropology. They're always like, oh, we talked to some, you know, some people at this or rural diner or whatever. And as urban people, they tend not to express overt xenophobia, there's a consensus that racism is real and bad. Um, they tend to uh, rely on evidence, uh, scientific evidence and, and a lot. So at this point, there isn't a lot of climate change denialism in the mainstream press. Uh, they don't give a lot of credence to conspiracy theories about like massive voter fraud among Democrats and on and on, right? So there's... Um, there are biases that look liberal, and I guess this is a premise for two questions. First, I guess I should just ask so you know, listeners understand, what is it that you see as evidence that the legacy media actually does tilt right? Let me start there. Yeah, well, we can definitely start there. I, th I think that the, I think one thing that the the issue as it concerns covering trans topics is a good one for understanding this. Um, because you look at the the way that this is all sort of discussed. I mean, you, there will be these semi-regular, you know, the topic of the New York Times letter was that essentially the Times had devoted an inordinate amount of attention to to stories that, that just asked the question like, hey, are there too many trans people around? <laughs> um, in in a roundabout way, there they, these were all these were all stories that were built on this uh, this sort of idea where it's like, oh, there are kids who say they're trans, and then uh, maybe maybe they're not being screened enough, but maybe maybe we should just make their healthcare illegal, um, which that's that's kind of a leap, you know. That's that's kind of the argument being made by people on the right and the times just sort of dances around it it's sort of sort of just like no no, no. these are people that you know they'll they'll qualify things to be like so and so said they're to the left of bernie sanders it's like oh okay i don't care <laughs> um you know but, but but they just have concerns about their trans kid and this gets story after story after story in the times and elsewhere 
but the there the biases that are built into this that that they will never ever acknowledge that news outlets won't acknowledge that you've seen in the past um is is that there is a when when people talk about about trans teens and healthcare and you know stuff like that the reason that they like there's people in the press tend to not openly say that they believe it is a better outcome for someone who is trans to go oh actually i'm not trans i can live comfortably as the you know as the the sex i was assigned at birth like that's fine i can do that and they see that as the optimal outcome uh which is a position someone can have sure i mean personally my view is uh that the optimal outcome is whatever makes an individual happy uh, you know, if they're trans, great. If they're not, okay. You know, it's yeah. all the same. I, I don't have a everyone should be trans or no one should be trans kind of approach to things. And that's sort of the the way that this is always reported on in the paper where it's this unmentioned, unwritten rule, um, un, you know, unwritten, built-in belief that not being trans is superior to being trans. And and in the past, you've had stuff like that happen with, you know, if you think back to when mainstream media outlets were focused on the, uh, all the ex-gay stuff, you know, they would, the ex-gay movement, they would interview people who would be like, look, he was a gay man. And then he, he went to some conference and now he's, now he's happy he's had therapy. and he's married to, and he's and married to a woman and they have kids. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> that, that is sort of like those stories. The goals of that was to, was to send a message to be like, look, see, it's clearly a choice. You could just choose not to be this and you should choose not, you know, like that was kind of this, this implied suggestion, you know, that, or that, that like, Hey, clearly you can be straight if you want to. And that was used to argue against people's people's rights and, and, yeah. and I mean, you know, marginalizing. Yeah. Sorry. This is a really interesting point because the New York Times always falls back on the idea like, oh, we're just doing very serious reporting and our standards are excellent. So we don't we don't need to be swayed by activist complaints. Um, their historic coverage of of gay rights back a generation ago was abysmal and they admitted it and they, they came out and they said, look, what our coverage. So for years and years in the seventies, they banned the use of the word gay. They said they had all these kind of very obvious built in and not even biases. These are editorial choices. Biases of course are subconscious. And it was a shameful period for the times you're seeing it, uh, uh, something similar going on right now, but I, I do really want to expand beyond the trans discussion because mm -hmm. uh, like the, if you look at the legacy media generally, they have a tendency and this has been discussed in, in media criticism circles on the left, certainly for 20, 30 years, tendency to embrace conservative beliefs about, for example, deficits and the federal debt. Like mm -hmm. that's a big issue. But, it, you know, that that is played as something that is objectively true when it is not objectively true. There's a, a lot of debate over how important uh, running deficits are and, and the nature of the federal debt, whether it, it creates pressures on the economy, etc. Um, they have long embraced the supposed need to reform popular programs like Social Security and Medicare, mm -hmm. as if that's an objective fact. That's not an objective fact, mm -hmm. right? I mean, actually, the objective fact is that these programs are in good shape and perhaps need little tweaks by Congress, right? But not even to adjust benefits, just increase the funding. You can blow off the caps on the Social Security, on the payroll tax for social that funds these programs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's an inherently conservative belief system that they have long embraced as objectively so. Um, they tend to be pretty pro-war. They are pro-establishment. They tend to be pro-business. All of these are at least somewhat conservative biases. Um, and of course, they have this institutional bias towards seeing every issue that divides our society as having like two or more less valid sides. And that's not the case with everything. Um, but it's 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 you know, 
it has the effect of whitewashing right-wing extremism, which is something that the legacy media is is devoted to at present in a way that's really mm-hmm. um, disturbing. My other question about that premise is, so given that there are these like urban biases, right? Like things like that. And, and, and given um, how long right-wingers have claimed that the neutral press is hopelessly biased against them, mm-hmm how much harder is it to convey the reality of those kinds of biases that, you know, deficits, debts, war, peace, et cetera, to people who may not be media nerds. I mean, I, I often feel like a crazy person when I call out the times coverage because Mm -hmm. people, you know, more people who aren't like me, who don't pay that much attention, just assume that the New York times is both the paper of record with these unimpeachable and, like sterling journalistic journalistic standards and that it leans left. So it, mm-hmm. I must be nuts to say, Hey, they are whitewashing right-wing extremism here and they're doing so with bad journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh that's definitely, it's, it's built in. It's, it's such a, it's, it's a challenge to try to, to try to push back on that because as you said, people see the New York times and they go, that is, you know, Oh no, the liberal New York times. See, look, Trump hates them. That's, that's one thing that a lot of people get. They go, if Trump hates this, this group, then they must be on the left. Trump right. hates CNN. Even, so, as, even if you know. he's blathering about C- yeah. as, about Fox lately. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. I, you know, he has these like he just doesn't like anyone who says anything bad about him ever, and that's that's all. You know, so he's going to hate everything. And right. I think there's there is a built in bias among journalists to go, well, if everyone's mad at me, then I must be doing something right. And that's God, just I it's, hate that. It's a we nonsense. talked about that with Froomkin actually. It's a, it's yeah. It's, it's ludicrous. Like if everybody thinks you're full of shit, maybe you're yeah, just full maybe of you're shit. Yeah, maybe you're just full of shit. <laughs> but <laughs> but like one thing that that was uh you know that that I that I think about with this, which you know, I because I did try during the Trump Trump administration to look at how Republicans were talking about the deficit and go, cool. I've got a bunch of quotes of them being like deficits don't matter. <laughs> like just just like not caring at all. And, and I, I wrote a piece when I was at media matters that I forgot what the headline was, but it was something to the general idea, like never let them pretend to take deficits seriously again, because they don't, they don't care when they're not in power. They only care when they are. And, you know, that's something that Dick Cheney admitted, you know, he, 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 he said that like deficits are bad when they're, when it's under Democrats, Deficits are, are okay when they're under Republicans, you know, it's yeah. like, that's, that's just kind of their, their vibe, but, um, it, it's impossible to try to, to try to dig out from, from under that because the, the narrative is supported by mainstream outlets. Because if, if the New York times doesn't report that, oh, oh, look at the deficit and the national debt and oh my God, this has something has to be done about this or, or the, the crime, crime wave or, or the free speech oh, crisis reporting. on campus. You know, it's like all of these things are just, just given, you know, like they're treated as, as, as neutral beliefs that, oh, well, it's a huge problem that conservatives can't, can't say what they're, what they're really thinking on campus. Right. right. And we it's, have oh, a it's a constant drumbeat. Like I, conservatives yeah. won't shut up. Their problem is that we do hear them and we know yeah. what they believe. And that's the, pro- that's our problem with them. Oh yeah. I mean, this- I, I get, I get people say, saying to me like, oh, well you, you know what, maybe if you took some time to understand their views, Jesus, I man, used to we, work at Media Matters. Them, right? That was my, enti- my entire job. <laughs> Job was paying attention to what they were saying and it's it's all bonkers it's all over the place and you know a, a lot of the, the one thing that that will always frustrate me is this idea that it's like look we're just reporting the news we're just telling you what's happening in the world we're just giving the stories come in we write them down and we send them out and that's that's it's just false i mean yes. editorial judgment matters you know the the decision to put a story on page one instead of page 20 the decision to put something in the first paragraph instead of burying it at the bottom of a piece you know like these things are all all factor into what the public cares about media is it's it's a powerful institution 
And yeah. and with that, you've got to be responsible. That's sort of the the kind of idea. Great power, great responsibility, etc. You know, just to I mean, it's the lens through which Spider Man for a moment. Yeah, that's the <laughs> lens through which most people see the world around them, right? I mean, most people are not like voracious news consumers where they're reading different sources. You're right. They're like getting their news from whatever their primary sources are. And they're, that shapes their view of, of what is important. What isn't important. What is a challenge? What isn't a challenge? Um, So I want to just make a point. I'm going to circle back to what you just said in a second, but um, the times portrays itself as impervious to criticism, at least from the left. Uh, They dismiss all the criticism that they hear as the work of activists who are beneath their pure and nonpartisan journalism. And I, and and I think that their journalistic standards are a common defense Mm -hmm. and I, and, and they do some amazing high quality journalism that makes it all more complicated because that is unlike like the Breitbart, which you can just dismiss as you know, a partisan claptrap, um, they do have very high journalistic standards. But a lot of the things that we're complaining about actually do not reflect good journalistic standards. And I just want to give the example that this this has dogged the the Times coverage of trans issues. If you are an advocate for trans rights being human rights, you are a activist, but they constantly quote people as just regular concerned parents who are in fact conservative activists who are associated with organizations, well-funded organizations that are, you know, and they, they omit those connections and this is this is not good journalism. This is really bad journalism. And I just also want to note that they got rid of their public editor. So most criticism is coming from outside the house and can be dismissed as that activist thing. Employees aren't allowed to impugn the Times editorial standards. Everyone else is an activist. It's really easy to, to just do that. So it's not just a problem with the you know, with the opinion pages. It's actually there is some bad journalism. But I want to go back to the point that you just made because it really is the, the more, the even more important point. Um, so according to one estimate uh, by Tom, is it Soka or Skoka? I'm not sure. Do you know how to pronounce I, his I, name? I don't know. So I'm it's sure. it, it may be a, a silent S, uh, a silent C or, or not. And I, my apologies well, to Tom. One of, one of those names that, that I've read <laughs> a thousand a times. A million but... times. Yeah, but never, ever thought. Maybe I should get him on the show at some point. There's a lot of people who I'm like, I learned how to pronounce their name because they were coming on the podcast. And I I will literally like Google a video to see how somebody else introduced It's pathetic, but that's the truth. So according to Tom Skoka or Soka, again, apologies, the New York Times ran, Tom S, ran 15,000 words on the front page. That is the real estate at the paper of record that is supposed to be reserved for the most pressing issues in our society. They ran 15,000 words on the front page in an eight-month period. And here I quote, asking whether care and support for young trans people might be going too far or too fast. Mm -hmm. So obviously, with that much news coverage, I should point out that this does not include the opinion pages. This is the front page. You must think that this is a huge problem. And according to Pew, 1.6% of Americans identify as either transgender or non-binary. A subset of that 1.6% actually seeks gender-affirming care, right? A lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. And a subset of that are minors, right? Mm -hmm. So, And nowhere in the known universe are people rushing minors toward any kind of permanent care, right? The opposite is true. There's it, And it should be difficult for minors, right? I mean, it should be kind of difficult. Sure. Um, So I want to mention... A couple of news stories from this week. One is from last week, and I didn't do a thorough search, but I don't believe these were mentioned by the New York Times. Um, or one of them was. The, the rest were not. So there was a state senator in Florida who introduced a bill that would ban the Democratic Party. The bill doesn't mention the Democratic Party specifically, but it bans any party that once supported slavery. And it's very common among right-wingers to kind of rewrite the history of the post-civil rights uh, Southern realignment and pretend that the modern GOP is not the 
political descendants of those pro-slavery Democrats is not the party that defends the, you know, the Confederate flag, blah, blah, blah. Um, another elected official in Montana, a Republican, obviously introduced a bill that would make it a crime to donate blood if you've been vaccinated against COVID. Not to be outdone, two lawmakers in Idaho are trying to make it a crime to give someone an mRNA vaccine, including but not limited to COVID vaccines, right? In Missouri, a Republican state lawmaker introduced the most extreme don't say gay bill yet. It would ban teaching anything at all related to the LGBTQ community at all ages, right? Not just like, oh, under age 12 or whatever, all ages. And asked if that included teaching about Supreme Court cases that dealt with gay rights. She said, yes, yes, you can't teach like Obergefell, for example. In Tennessee, a Republican didn't go so far as to offer a bill that would allow convicted felons to be executed by hanging them from a tree. But he did ask during a committee hearing if he could offer an amendment to that effect. And NBC NBC reported this week on a trend at the federal level uh, with Republican lawmakers, including Speaker Kevin McCarthy, meeting with January 6th insurrectionists and their supporters, the people who attacked the Congress. Right now, Parker, these bills won't become law. Um, they're troubling because they reflect the embrace of conspiracy theories and rejection of democracy that embodies the Republican Party. Uh, but these people do have power, unlike trans kids or liberal mm-hmm. college students. These people have power. I want to ask you this, like a thought experiment. What do you think our political environment might look like if the media devoted half as much space, half as much space on the front page to this kind of pretty naked fascism as they do to the right's moral panics and in the same way where they create this narrative and then they plug every story, a new story every week? What would, what would, mm-hmm. what do you think, what do you think our political discourse would look like? You know, I, I think it would actually be uh, probably a bit, uh, a bit better and more informed <laughs> because because the, the the function of of the the moral panic stories that they they toss on the front page because if you, if you go and look at you know for instance the ones about trans kids these are like there, there's no clear actual news peg to them right. they're, 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 it's not like oh here's some new study that changes everything because yeah that should totally be covered obviously and of course medical groups should keep covering you know, could, should keep trying to improve care that obviously, but like the yes. time is just being like, Hey, we, we've got this question again. We're not going to answer it, but we're going to ask it like that. Even, even if you take apart the fact that that's, that's clearly taking a, a side on this, it just doesn't tell people anything. It doesn't inform them. It makes them feel it, 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 it's on the front page because it makes people feel something, you know, but if you if the New York Times was putting stories about, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis a- attacking schools and, you know, and, all, you know, all of the all of the, th- the examples that you that you mentioned and giving them the type of attention that they get both on the news side and, and the opinion, because I do think it, I do think it's important because they, they really do shape each other. I, I think we'd be more more informed and probably less riled up as a as a country over over moral panics. I mean, because yeah. right now, if you know, uh, one thing that's just just kind of amazing me. So the other day, you had, uh, you know, real life James Bond villain Chris Rufo, um, saying like talking about a college in Florida saying we'll be shutting down low performing ideologically captured academic departments and hiring new faculty. The student body will be recomposed over time. Some current students will self-select out. Others will graduate. We'll recruit new students who are mission aligned. That was for a public school in Florida. And, and then the very next day, the New York Times published uh, another piece, another piece that was about uh, how universities are, you know, just t- are too liberal and, they, and they're going to just make conservatives more extreme. And like the guy that they had write this was some guy named, uh, uh, you know, uh, Adam Hoffman. 
and they only described him as Adam Hoffman as a senior at Princeton. And in 2018, the New York Times changed the design of its its opinion pages. And, you know, the very first change that it made is said a short author bio below the byline to more clearly provide useful context and detail about the role, experience, and expertise of staff writers and contributors. Additional information about the writer will continue to appear at the bottom of opinion articles. That's smart. That's a, that was a great move, but they just left it as he's a senior at Princeton. No, he's a, he's a lifelong conservative activist. I mean, uh, the, there was an article that said at age 14, Hoffman volunteered for his first political campaign for Governor Greg Abbott. During the 2016 Republican presidential primary, he backed Cruz, leading his, the senator's Youth for Ted movement. He also <laughs> served as chairman of high school Republicans of Texas. Like, that he's a conservative activist and there's nothing wrong with the times publishing the work of a conservative activist but right. you cannot just introduce him as a senior at Princeton like that is not you know like the last time that the times published anything by me and probably the last time they'll ever publish anything by me was in 2018 and it it had like a disclaimer like Parker Malloy is the editor at large at Media Matters for America and that's where I worked at the time and it was an important disclaimer. You know, people need to know like the the point of view that that I the the writer is coming from. And the Times just didn't do that. And the fact that they published it a day after Chris Rufo's like mustache twirling, tying to the train tracks kind of routine about doing the exact sorts of things that conservatives com- co- complain about the left doing, which the yeah. left is not doing. It's just, it's such a thumb on the scale kind of approach to things because in the past there, there, there were, there had been times where, because I've pitched maybe 20, 25 pieces to the times over the years and they published two of them. Um, But like, there was one time where I, I, in the, in the wake of the death of a trans girl named Leela Alcorn back in, I think 20, 15 2014 i don't know time is confusing uh but so i i responded to that i responded to that piece by pitching a story to the Times, saying hey uh i'd like to write a piece about why it's important to uh right now pass pass a law that that makes conversion therapy illegal because it's harmful it's here there it's science backed there are all sorts of arguments to be made and they were like, that sounds like a great idea. The editor I was talking to was like that. And then he goes, he responds to me. He goes, ah, actually, it turns out we already ran something on this. And I thought he meant like last week. But then when I was like, oh, okay. And he, so he sends me the link to an article that was published more than a year earlier that was like conversion therapy is bad, but made different arguments than I was making. And I'm like, that was, you can't, he said, sorry, we just can't publish something that's on this on this same sort of topic that is not uh you know that th- th- that is so close together meanwhile we get one of these like i'm a conservative student who went to college and oh it turns out people don't like when i argue with them in class and that is making me self-censor you know like every six yeah. months and, so, and listen it, there's a thing I mean, that i want to point out here yeah. it's not just like omitting some college although this is a common thing but they ran a piece new york times ran a piece this week by Damon Linker, it's titled "My Fellow Liberal Liberals Are Exaggerating the Dangers of Ron DeSantis." Right yeah. now, if you if you know who Linker is, like he's also written pieces. Like he had one that titled "Liberals Are Drunk on a Political Poison" called "Intersectionality: How Conservatives Out Intellectualized Progressives." He has identified himself on Twitter as a conservative, and here they are running this bullshit. The same week that Chris Rufo bragged on Twitter about turning a public college that they took over, the DeSantis administration took over, uh, into this little right-wing red red pill mill. And um, that was the second 
New York Times opinion piece in a month about how liberals are crazy to say that Ron DeSantis is a fascist. We will be talking more about Ron DeSantis next week because we are not crazy to call him a fascist. Friends, in the past couple of weeks, the world got... He is a, a naked fascist. In the past couple of weeks, the world got confirmation that Fox News knowingly lied to its audience about Donald Trump's election fraud bullshit, um, that internally they were pretty clear that it was nonsense. And I think that the New York Times and other legacy media outlets pose a greater threat to democracy because they aren't considered right-wing media. And I, that's my belief. Parker Malloy, yeah. I believe we're out of time. I took way more time than I asked you for, and I'm sorry for that, but I want to thank you for taking no, the time. No, that is okay. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on again. Thank you. I also want to thank A.R. Moxon and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Ross Story and Alternet for supporting the show. You can follow me on Mastodon at Joshua Holland at mastodon.social. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, I would like to thank all of you fine and discerning people for tuning in. Have a, have a good week. Somebody please Help me in my memories Can somebody see